Welcome to Superintendent Radio Network. I'm Guy Cipriano. We're continuing our Tartan Talk series by having a conversation with Mike Gogol. Mike comes from a golf family. His parents are avid golfers, and his brother Matt played on the PGA Tour. Mike also comes from a golf course construction background, which gives him an interesting perspective. On this podcast, we're going to talk about how Mike made the transition from working in golf course construction to becoming a golf course architect. We're going to talk about some of his recent work, and we're also going to talk about the relationship he's developed with Country Club of Jackson, Mississippi Superintendent Stanley Reedy. But before we get going with Mike, we'd like to thank Better Billy Bunker for supporting this podcast. Better Billy Bunker is not only a big supporter of the American Society of Golf Course Architects, Better Billy Bunker supports a number of industry efforts, including the work of golf course superintendents. So we're glad to have them on board, and we're glad that Mike was able to take some time to join us. Well, Mike, it's great to have you on the podcast. I have to admit, I'm a little envious of you right now. You're in Phoenix, Arizona, and it's probably in the 60s and 70s, while a lot of us in the Midwest are preparing for a blizzard. Anyway, Uh, The first thing I wanted to ask you is you recently completed a project at the Jayhawk Club in Lawrence, Kansas. Tell our listeners about that club's unique history and why that project was so important and personal to you. Well, thanks, Guy. Uh, Appreciate it. Um, Yeah, we just finished up the project, uh, scheduled to open here. uh, We're hoping by May 1. Um, And I guess the history of it, it goes back to, you know, really my parents. They, um, They attended the University of Kansas and played what was then called Alvamar Golf and Country Club, you know, back in the, right after it opened. And uh, to be able to go back, my brother played golf at the University of Kansas, and he won the actually Kansas Open at, at uh, Alvamar when it was uh, held there. Um, so there was a lot of kind of family ties, family history, and to be able to go back to, you know, a place that I played numerous times. I even played in the Kansas Open there one year. And to go back and, and get to, you know, redo a golf course, and leave it for the next generation to you know, call them Jayhawks, even though I didn't go to KU. Uh, that's where we grew up. And to leave it for them and, and create something that, you know, my family had a long history in uh, as far as playing is pretty special. It was really special. Describe the scope of the project and everything uh, you and the club were trying to accomplish. Well, so um, Alvamar at one time was a 36-hole, um, 18-hole public, 18-hole private, and just through the years, through, you know, changes in demographics and, and uh, environment, it uh, started falling a little bit on hard times. A new developer came in and bought the property and had elected to uh, redevelop it, put in some townhomes and condominiums and apartments, and then we converted um, nine of the holes into, that, into their uh, developable area. Uh, we took the remaining 27 holes, nine we left untouched, and then a combination of what was the championship public course and the back nine of the private course, we combined to make an 18-hole golf course. And we redid everything from the irrigation system, all new tees, bunkers, and greens, uh, significant rerouting um, to try and make everything more cohesive and, comb- and uh, flow better and create as much developable land for the, develop- for the owner as we could. Um, in doing that, we also were allowed to carve out around 30 acres for a practice facility for the University of Kansas golf program. And they built a brand-new building, state-of-the-art um, indoor practice area with track man, uh, indoor track man systems and 
indoor putting and chipping greens and all that team rooms and that kind of stuff. And then we redid their practice facility, their short game area, and they now have um, three practice greens, which will have all bent grass greens, but we did three different fairway types. We've got a bent grass fairway, a zoysia grass fairway, and a Bermuda grass fairway for the teams to practice off of. So pretty excited about it. Um, I've worked with my, I worked with my brother, brought him on board, and or he brought me on board, actually. He helped get me in there, and uh, we worked together. I, I would sketch up some ideas and throw them his way. What do you think? What do you like? What do you not like? And he'd comment on them, and we just went on our way and got to create the Jayhawk Club, and we're super excited about the reopening uh, coming up. You mentioned zoysia grass. From what I understand, that property has quite a history with that variety. Yeah, it does. Um, Mel Anderson, original developer along with Bob Billings, um, they they were way ahead of their time back in the uh, 51 years ago. And they were the, Mel Anderson was the one that actually brought Zoysia into Albemarle, uh, now the Jayhawk Club, and it was the first golf course west of the Mississippi to have Zoysia grass fairways. And so we kept, uh, kept that Zoysia. We actually kept the same Zoysia. It's all Meyer. Uh, which was the grass that was originally brought in. It's kind of fun to be able to, you know, you think back to that, and we're, we're just kind of continuing that legacy. What design considerations do you have to make for zoysia grass? How does it play and react different than maybe some of the other varieties you've worked with in the past? Well, the Myers is, a, you know, a little bit, I, I call it thicker bladed uh, compared to some of the newer zoysias. A little bit spongier. We do run it a little drier um, and trying to get that firmness of the golf course, but you know, one of the beauties of zoysia grass is that, and everybody that's played on it knows, it's like teeing your ball up in the middle of the fairway. So from a good player standpoint, it's a little bit tougher to play from because we want to be able to compress the ball and get spin on the golf ball. But for the amateur player, um, maybe the, the less skilled player, they are able to get the ball airborne easier because they can get hybrids and three woods under the ball and get the ball up in the air much easier than they could, say, off of Bermuda grass or off of a really tight uh, zoysia, these newer zoysias. So taking into account, one of the things that was a challenge with the Jayhawk Club is, and I, I've told people this, it's, it was similar. I'm actually designing two golf courses uh, in one. Uh, one, I'm, you know, I've got to keep into consideration the modern player, the collegiate player, the, the pros. We've got a couple PGA Tour guys that are playing out of our golf club, and they – you know, they're hitting three woods 300 yards nowadays. And so trying to balance, you know, challenging the University of Kansas and, and the golf teams and tournaments that will be coming into there, we have already been awarded the state mid-amateur championship and the state amateur championship, and we haven't even opened, so we're pretty excited. But I'm also trying to balance it with, you know, when my mom and dad go out and play and the other membership, the rest of the membership, and how are they going to have fun and try to get around a golf course that's, you know, 7,100 yards, but it can play, you know, every bit of 7,500 yards when you factor wind and, you know, the zoysia and the ball doesn't roll as much, so you got to take those into account. What were some benefits of going from 36 to 27 holes? I think a lot of clubs are considering maybe downsizing or finding other uses for the land. How did that decision help the club, and how did that decision maybe help you as an architect, too? You know, it's kind of interesting. We, we've we went from twenty sorry from thirty six to twenty seven, so we've eliminated nine holes, obviously. But really, when you factor in the Kansas program and, and their land at thirty acres, 
we're not a whole lot short of, of still having 36 holes that are maintainable as far as uh, acreage is concerned. We were able to accommodate, you know, new development. There's a significant um, wellness center, health and fitness center that's been developed by the uh, owners. Um, they put in a pool, which had never been on property before, uh, that has cabanas and, and outdoor grills and all that stuff. Uh, they redid one of the clubhouses. There were two clubhouses on property originally. But, I, you know, to say that we actually pared it down from, from 36 to 27, I don't know that that's really the case in, at the Jayhawk Club just because of the amount of acreage that's still being maintained. To try and compensate for that and keep it to a minimum as much as possible, at one time the Jayhawk Club was really maintained wall-to-wall. I mean, uh there were very few native areas, and I know that's becoming more and more popular for our designers like like myself and others. Uh, we're trying to incorporate, you know, more of the native environments and, and reduce maintained square footage, and so we were able to do that by clearing out a significant amount of tree cover uh, that had grown up over the years, and that was the way we kind of maintained and balanced the fact that we still had a lot of maintained turf, but we're not maintaining as much turf as we once were. You mentioned your parents are avid golfers. Your brother, Matt, played on the PGA Tour and works for the Golf Channel now. Do they try to influence your design decisions, and how did growing up in a golf family impact you? My, my parents never really, they, they didn't uh, have any say in the Jayhawk Club at all uh, or the design or any aspect of it. I do actually consult my mom, ironically, um, with regard to, how far, you know, she's hitting the golf ball nowadays and how far her peers and her friends hitting it because I want to take into consideration their games as much as I do, you know, guys like my brother and, and other uh, very skilled players who are hitting it forever. Um, and so how, and that's, you know, I, I get a kind of a firsthand account of, you know, my mom hits, a, hits her driver 145 yards and, you know, my brother doesn't. So um, it actually works to my benefit in that regard. As far as, you know, saying, well, I don't like the bunker over there, or I think the green should do this, or uh, they, they didn't really have a say. Matt did have more of a say. Um, we consulted together. and we, I mean, we were on site a lot during the uh, project. I'm typically on site a couple, two or three days a week, every week anyway, and he was there as much as his schedule would allow, being as he lives 45 minutes from the golf course. So he did have more of a say in his uh, – his son is actually an up-and-coming player, really a, a good young player, and he wants to get into the golf course design. And so I actually brought him along and, you know, hey, you know, what are you thinking here? What, do you, what would you like to see over here? And, oh, I want to see this green do. You know, he, he'd actually put a little sketch together of what he wanted to see the green do. And so we, we accommodated one of his greens out there. And, um, I, I, you know, when he gets to go play it, I hope he, hope he recognizes it. Yeah, how special was it to work alongside your brother, and it sounds like your nephew a little bit. That's a really, really unique opportunity. Yeah, it was really it was special. Um, you know, Matt's been out, you know, doing his career, and you know, being a professional athlete takes an inordinate amount of time, and um, you know, traveling and practice and the amount of hours that goes into it. And we'd always been kind of going in opposite directions as far as you know my travel and his travel. So we were never really been able to spend a lot of time on site. Um, and I think this was, if I'm not mistaken, one of the first projects he's been able to be on um, and play some of the holes that, and got to see kind of how, how I go about my business and my work. 
And so it was really kind of fun. It, it, I think it brought us closer together. Um, you know, we've always been close, but I think th- this brought a new perspective to him and, and maybe even into he, he might have gleaned a few things he uses in the broadcast now that he may not have even recognized. I, I remember one day we were looking, we did it all the, all the greens mix blending on site, and I was showing him that, you know, we had piles of sand and we had piles of Dakota peat. And we, we had all that product sitting there, but they were in separate, you know, they weren't blended together. And I showed him, I like, took a handful of sand, took a handful of peat, and blended them together. So this is what happens. And his comment to me was, wow, I didn't realize there was that much science behind this. <laughs> so it was, it was kind of fun to bring the tour guy, you know, back to the genesis of, of you know, what we do to help them create and earn their living. And I've joked with him in the past and said, you, you know, you do realize without guys like myself and others that you don't make a living. So, <laughs> um, you know, I, I think uh, just a little fun ribbing like that is, is, always, is always good. But I think it was really kind of an eye-opener for, from him. What led you to golf course architecture? That was really my dad. I mean, when I was in, um, when I was in high school, I was a kid that started off with, you know, first couple of days of classes. It was good notes and everything was in order and, you know, big A, little A, one, two, three. And by the third day of class, it was big A, little A, golf hole sketches. And even though I had no idea what I was doing or, or how you do it or any of those things, it was just kind of the imagination taking over. And when I went off to college, like many, you know, I played golf in school, but didn't, didn't really know what I was going to do beyond that. And he brought up the fact that he worked in my dad's line of work, he worked with an individual who was, I believe, the brother-in-law of Bob Cup, and suggested, why don't you get into golf course construction or golf course design? And to be quite frank, I didn't realize those careers even existed. Um, so I sent a letter to Mr. Cup, and he wrote back a three-page letter, uh, which was his style. He would he would always go a little bit above and beyond for all of us, and you know said. You know, for the most part, go get a degree in something with drawing and computers and uh, computer skills, and then go out and build golf courses for 18 months to two years. And I got a degree in industrial engineering and design, and uh, just so happened the golf course was being built about 20 minutes north of where I lived in Tulsa, and went up my junior year and got a job and went to work for a construction company. And when I graduated, I went out and built golf courses for eight years. So I went a little bit past the 18 months, but... Um, I really enjoyed doing what I was doing and got to visit different parts of the country and see how golf courses are put together in different environments as well as working with a number of different architects. And They, don't, they didn't know who I was because I was a laborer guy or a management guy, but you know, it was still kind of fun to see them and how they go about it. What do you remember about your first golf course construction project? I remember it was incredibly hot uh, and incredibly humid, uh, which was Tulsa, Oklahoma in the summer. And just the amount of of effort that it takes to actually build a golf course. Um, there's, for those that don't know, and there's an inordinate amount of hand labor that goes into building golf courses and crafting golf courses. My first job was literally putting in greens drainage ditches um, with a walk-behind trencher, and we had to shovel all the spoils into a wheelbarrow and haul them all off. And it wasn't mechanically done as other than the trencher, and we then had to spread all the pre gravel by hand. We actually put a choker layer in, at that time, and we had to do all that by hand. And then uh, little by little, um, I got to spend more time because uh, more time on pieces of equipment. So I went from having never run anything more than a backyard lawnmower to running backhoes and 
I got a chance to operate a bulldozer and, and do some things like that that, you know, there's a kid in a candy store type thing. And uh, a lot of good stories, a lot of um, still memories to this day. When I go back around the golf course, I actually was back in Tulsa about five years ago and went out to Bailey Ranch and went around the golf course and, and just it was amazing the amount of memories you had. Like, oh, I remember doing this or I remember, you know, hanging out with the guys over here doing that or, uh, working on this project or, you know, laying this sod or whatever the case may be. But all those memories from 20, 27 years earlier came flooding back. It was kind of fun. Yeah, what is that like being young and out of school and working golf course construction where you're traveling all over the place and working uh, different hours and long hours with people that probably you didn't know before during that project? What What is that lifestyle like for someone just out of college? I, I loved it. I, I think it was really pretty cool. I, I remember uh, I graduated, I, I remember the dates, I graduated May 8th, 1993. I left on Memorial Day weekend and drove to Ann Arbor, Michigan to work at the University of uh, Michigan Golf Course renovation. And I passed some of my friends on I-44. They were going to the lake and I'm going to work. So uh, right there was a kind of a precursor to what I would be coming up against and that you're right, we put in a a significant number of hours. Um, you're up well before uh, daylight usually, and you're working. You know, I think we worked five tens and an eight was our typical schedule. Um, and if you ran into weather or schedule started getting tight, you just I mean, just meant you worked more. You worked more. So, but then getting to you know, like I said, go around the country. And I've lived in Ann Arbor. I've lived in Leesburg, Virginia. I lived in Palm Springs, California. Um, Raleigh, North Carolina, um, you know, Valencia, California. I mean, I've been to a lot of different parts of San Antonio, Dallas, um, Tucson. Been a lot of different places and built a lot of different golf courses and, you know, met some different people along the way. And some of those people I still know to this day. And it's been, you know, 20, what, seven years, 28 years. So pretty fun. Now you're a full-time golf course architect living in Phoenix, how did you make the transition from that golf course construction lifestyle to what you do now? How did it all come about for you? Go back to Mr. Cup's letter, and, and you know, this is what I wanted to do. I wanted to become a designer, and I felt like, you know, getting as much construction background as I could would help me in that regard. Um, I was living in Raleigh, North Carolina, and uh, my brother had been recruited by uh, the University of Oklahoma to play golf for them out of college, and at the time, they were the number one ranked program in the country. They had just won the national championship uh, in 1989. Trip Davis was on that team, and my brother knew Trip uh, from my brother's one year at OU. He transferred to KU after his first year, and so because of that con that connection, um, I sent and interviewed with Trip, and he was crazy enough or hard up enough to hire me. Uh, some of you had zero construct or zero. Uh, architecture skills, uh, but knew a little bit about construction, and Tripp's firm was pretty new at the time, and I think I was his first employee or one of his first employees, and um, it worked out great. I mean, he was able to uh, take me under his wing. He taught me literally, you know, how to draw grading plans. I mean, he taught me all that stuff. He taught me more about specifications and presentations and how to present things to owners and budgets and stuff like that from our side of the world that, you know, you don't get to learn when you're in construction necessarily. But, um, you know, it was because of Trip, the 
my my career path has been significantly blessed because of that that contact and those years I worked for him. Yeah, we had Trip on the podcast last year, and people in the business know that he was an outstanding golfer. And instead of trying to play professional golf, he went the the golf course architecture route. And I was looking at your bio, and you've also worked with John Fote, who was also another excellent amateur golfer. What did you learn from John? Yeah, John was the um, he was the 1977 U.S. Amateur Champion. And then in 78, he was the Rookie of the Year on the Tour, and he won in back-to-back weeks on the PGA Tour. So, uh, yeah, he could, he could move it around. Um, and I had met John, ironically, when I moved to Arizona. I moved to work for another designer, and that didn't work out. And I got back into construction for about a year and a half. And then during that process, we actually, the construction company I worked for, uh, went to do a renovation that John was the golf course architect of, uh, the club here in town. And so John and I met at that point, and, you know, just through conversations and him being on site, and I was more of a manager at that point as opposed to just a random guy out in the field. And he, he I think, somehow recognized that, you know, I had a little passion for this uh, beyond maybe the average guy. I had, some, I had a skill set that maybe uh, would work in his favor or help him. And we talked for about, you know, probably 18 months before I actually went to work for him. Yeah, I think it was great. We, he and I collaborated on a number of projects together, won an award or two here and there, and I think we really complemented each other's design styles. And you know, we both kind of look at golf courses the same way. We're both um, we we love the strategic, you know, classic uh, golden age design work, and that fit that fit wonderfully right into where I wanted to be. And and John let me. Again, he if he put me on a job site, we again we would split jobs up where um, I would go for two days, he would go the next week for two days, and then the third week we would both go, and so we're both looking at the same thing at the same time, and I think it worked out well to where we could get to the point where I I would I see something that I think would work great, and John feels like yeah go do it that's fine I mean it works with what we're trying to do with the project he knew it wasn't. I wasn't going to go out there and do something completely unrelated to what we were doing, and it was going to fit with the scheme and everything like that. So he gave me a lot of freedom uh, to let me kind of start branching out. Trip did as well. Trip, Trip, you know, he would take me. We would go on the job sites together. He let me collaborate. He let me throw out my design ideas, um, and and that parlayed real well into what John wanted to do and what John, how John and I worked, and that we worked together. It wasn't a you know my idea and your idea and I'm going to do these five holes and you go do those thirteen holes and we'll see how it turns out at the end. It was a I don't think you could go look at any of our golf courses and figure out what holes I did and what holes John did. At what point did you realize it was time to to go out on your own and start your own firm? Well, that was in um, 2012, and uh, at the time we had just finished up John and I had just finished up a number of different uh, master plans and some things. And John was uh, John's wife was having some medical issues, and so it worked out to where you know I just said you know go take care of your wife, and I'll go figure this out. And you know to this day, in fact, I just talked to him an hour or two hours ago. Um, you know it worked out to where it was a good time to move on, um, and and kind of start doing a few of my own things, and it didn't hurt John any, and to the point where in 2015. We did the Grand Canyon University golf course, and 
John actually got the award for the contract, but he called me and and allowed me to uh, come and work on the project and become, you know, the primary designer to where I could count that as my fifth golf course and I needed to become a member of the American Society of Golf Course Architects. So, you know, he was always looking to help move me along, and, and I've been around him, and I'll, I'll boast a little here, but he's, he's told people before that, you know, I'm one of the best guys he's worked with, and so I'm, you know, very honored by that because John's done a phenomenal job in his career, not just playing, obviously. He's put that well behind him, but in the design work he's done and the golf courses he's created, are, are, there's a, a lot of them that are still standing, and they're really, really good. How did the golf course construction background help you, especially in the early stages of, of your business? Well, I think it helped out tremendously in that when I go to a job site, um, you know, the, the contractors, I think, recognized right away when I was beginning that, you know, I, I, I know what they're got to, I know what challenges they face. Um, as I'm drawing plans, I'm thinking about how would I be moving the dirt or how would I be building this green or how would I, how would I, uh, you know, you know, accomplish this task that I know is going to be pretty challenging. And so I'm, I'm really trying to work, I'm working out how to make their jobs easier, um, which in turn makes the golf course better, which in turn keeps it in budget um, because we're not all of a sudden coming up against things that, you know, I didn't recognize as a designer and cost and potentially cost the owner money at the long run. So um, I, I know how they tend to bid jobs. Um, I know what kind of people they're going to be putting on the job, whether shapers or laborers or whoever. By being in there, having been in their shoes, I know the things that they're constantly looking for as far as trip falls or things that, that I, you know, as a designer we just missed uh, going through the process and how to, how to barter and how to, you know, trade and, you know, let's not do this, but we can do that. And that way everybody still is whole and, we still make money. You still make money, and the owner gets what they want. But we're not going, you know, over budget. You've talked a little about the synergy that an architect and builder has to have. Where does the superintendent fall into the mix, and what has it been like over the years working hands on with the golf course superintendents and the people that are going to maintain the property after you leave? I think it's immensely important for the superintendent and the architect, um, and ultimately the contractor, to get along. Um, I think the superintendent's jobs are underappreciated. Uh, I don't think anybody, I don't think people truly realize, maybe outside of the industry, I don't think people truly realize how much labor, how much time and effort the superintendent puts in on his projects. And, um, you know, I've, it's also made me a better designer. There's a, I've got a story that I tell a number of people. Um, we were building the Country Club of Jackson in Mississippi, and Stanley Reedy is one of the best in the business, absolutely one of the best. Um, even the tour guys will lot about his, his greens when they come to the tour event. And we were building a golf course, and the way we build greens at the time, or do now, the way we build greens, uh, we build them from the top down, which means we build everything finished grade, and then we excavate out the 16 inches of material for USGA green. And so in doing that, it gives the owners and the superintendents the ability to kind of see what it's going to be slope-wise and contour-wise before we actually get into it, uh, which sometimes it's very hard for them to visualize when it's, you know, you've got this, uh, this scoop out of a greens complex and they can't, they can't visualize 16 inches higher. They, they're, they just don't see it. So we were doing this, and Stanley, I showed up one day for my visit, 
and family's usually really happy and you know he's a southern guy real great hospitality and i came into the parking lot in the maintenance building and hey stanley how's it going oh it's okay he was kind of down the doldrums and i couldn't understand why and put my shoes on and get ready to go out in the car with him and he's just i'm like how you know what do we want to go see oh well whatever (laughs) what's going on and he goes oh come look at this with me so he comes over drives over to a green and he says where do you see the green's edge i painted it out okay, well, that's fine. Where do you see the bunker edge? I painted the bunker, and he goes, oh. I said, what? He goes, well, I'm just trying to figure out where I'm going to turn the air fire around. Great point. I have no idea. <laughs> you know, I've never run an air fire. How much room do you need? <laughs> and so, you know, it's one of those things that I would have never in a million years thought about at the time, and now I think about it all the time. But, you know, I'm like, well, how much room do you need? He goes, well, if I could get the green over here a little bit. Well, Stanley, how much room do you need? He goes, well, if I could get five to seven feet before it peels over into the bunker, that'd be great. Like, fine. We'll move the green's edge to here. You know, it's going to make your job easier. It's going to make our product better because you're not going to be tearing stuff up. Absolutely. Nobody's going to know we moved the green three feet. So that's what we did. And because of that one comment, you know, it, it, it's, it's made the golf course that much better, and those are things that to this day, as I'm painting greens out or I'm painting bunker lines out, I'm constantly thinking about how are they going to maintain this? Where are they going to turn this? And I'll constantly call the superintendent in. Is this too steep? Is this too sharp? Can you make this turn? Can you do this? What happens if I do this? You know, so on and so forth. And it's a, it's a team effort. I mean, it's, it, in my opinion, building a golf course is never, ever about the designer. It's a collaborative effort between what I design, what the contractor builds, and what the uh, superintendent can maintain. I've said in the past, I know others have probably said the same, we can draw the greatest set of plans in the world, we can have the absolute tightest specs in the world, but if you can't find somebody to build it and you don't have somebody to maintain it and it can't be maintained, what's the point? So that's just kind of how I work, work through my stuff. We were talking before we started recording this podcast about the Country Club of Jackson, and that golf course means a lot to you. And also, you get to go back for at least one week every year for the tournament, and you get to really experience life on the agronomy side. Explain how you became a volunteer on the agronomy staff, and what do you learn during that week volunteering during the Sanderson Farms Championship? When we built the golf course, the, go- the tournament at the time had always been over to another golf course in, in the um, in the area, a uh, small little, little town outside of Jackson, and we didn't have any idea we were going to ever have a tour event. We, John, it was a course John and I did together, and we built it for the members. And five years later, the tour event gets moved over to the Country Club of Jackson, and our I think one of the things we hang our hat on right now is that we're actually making a couple changes this year, but it's really putting things in that were in the master plan. But up to this year, the only thing we'd ever done to that golf course to get it tour ready was add two tees. That was it. So it was kind of fun in that regard. And in, in, in retrospect, looking back, that we designed a golf course that can host a tour event, but that the members played every day and loved it. So to that end, when we found out we were going to have the tour event, or actually even five years, six years prior to that, I'd always wondered – what goes on behind the tour event? What goes on behind the scenes on the ag- agronomic side? And I had met Matt Morton at Riviera a number of years prior, and I called him up one year and said, hey, I'd love to come volunteer. And he said, sure, come on over. 
so I did, and you know, was getting up at three in the morning and going through the process, and, and I was doing nothing critical. I was doing the firmness and speed for the greens. But it was still being able to round all these guys and all these different superintendents and assistants and uh, kit, you know, guys from all over the country and hearing their stories and, and kind of seeing what goes on, what Matt has to do and his staff has to do on a, on a yearly basis to get a tournament ready, our golf course ready for a tournament. So when we had the Country Club of Jackson come up, Obviously, I was extremely excited. John's extremely excited. And this was a great opportunity for, for me to go over and, you know, not just go and sit in the stands on a, you know, beautiful fall afternoon in Jackson, Mississippi, and watch a few holes and have a few beers and talk to the members, but actually be involved. And so I, I obviously, Stanley and I have become really, really good friends. And, you know, I was happy to go over and help him out and get up in the morning, do the morning stuff, come back in the afternoon, do the afternoon stuff. And I ended up doing the same thing. It was a little more quality control. First year was a little interesting in that, you know, Stanley had never had a tour event. None of the maintenance staff had ever had a tour event. We have volunteers come down um, from different businesses, different chemical sales guys, and will come and help out. And uh, the turf students from Mississippi State University and from Eastern University will come over and volunteer. Uh, and that's how we made up our staff and our volunteers. So we were all novices. And we're looking at the tour, and the tour's looking at us like, this is what we need, this is what we have to have. And we were able to get it done. And, you know, thanks to Stanley and his staff, he already had the golf course in pristine condition, so it really wasn't too hard to get it ready. But it's been fun to go back every year and meet some of the tour officials. And, you know, I've worked with uh, Dillard Pruitt now for four years. He wasn't there this past year. But um, we go through the golf course and go through the – he does the back nine setup. And we he asked me questions about pin positions and – how I designed something and why I designed it that way and how I'd want to see it played during the event. And if you put a pin here, what I thought about that, or if the tees are over here and the wind blows this way. So it's been really kind of fun to see what goes on with tournament setup and, and uh, how they're picking pin locations and that kind of thing. And then, you know, obviously just helping Stanley out. And, it, and it's a family affair. I, I've got to point this out. Stanley's brother-in-law is a, is a professor at, um, Mississippi State, and he comes into town and helps out with the event. And he's part of his group is part of the Divot Divas, and the Divot Divas are Stanley, uh, Stanley's wife, his daughter, his daughter-in-law, his son, his son-in-law, and his brother. Uh, or I'm sorry, brother-in-law. And they go out every afternoon, and they got their golf cart, and, and they're uh, they they fill in all the divots in the fairways. And that's I mean it's. You know, they're there every day from Monday through Sunday and, and uh, get to be a part of the program just as much as the rest of us. So it's a, it's a family affair, and it's a great effort. Yeah, during last year's uh, a military tribute at the Greenbrier, I was on the evening divot crew, and you learn so much by just seeing where tour players' divots are after a round. What are some things you've picked up on by volunteering the tournaments that maybe have helped you with your job and how you approach uh, your architecture assignments? Well, I, I think um, having a tour event is really special, and it's something that I think we all would strive to, to have on our golf courses uh, for exposure and, you know, to find out if we can really, if what we're doing can really test the best players in the game. But that said, um, you know, ultimately at the end of the day, there are very, very few tour events, and I think there's 30 five or 38 actually in the United States now on the, on the PGA tour, not counting the web or the LPGA events. And 
we're, we're not building for the tour, in my mind. We shouldn't be anyway. We should be building for the other 51 weeks a year that the members are playing the golf course. Um, but that said, there's obviously at a lot of golf courses, there's some, some guys that are just shy of, you know, I don't want to say tour quality because it is a different level. Um, but we want to, we want to challenge that club champion, whether it's the female club champion, the senior club champion, the juniors or the, or the, or the main men's club champion, just as much as we want to challenge the nine hole ladies group and let them have fun on, on their Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday events, whatever day it is. So I, I guess I'm, you know, I combine the study of uh, golden age design and strategy and how to work a golf ball around a golf course with understanding that not everybody's going to hit it, you know, on the angles that they need to hit it on. So how can I give them recoveries and allow them to recover to get, uh, to get the shots up into the green, whether it's my mom and dad or my nephew. Um, so there's a balance there. And, you know, I think, I think, you know, I'm a, as far as greens design, um, I'm a big proponent of not having a lot of segmented areas or, or tiers or, um, you know, large contours in the greens unless the greens are inordinately large. Um, I remember talking about my talking to my brother about putting and, you know, the what it takes to be a tour level quality putter. And he relayed to me one day that if we can, get, if we're on greens where we can read the breaks and we can see that it breaks six to eight inches and we're rolling the ball as well that week. We'll make eight of ten inside of ten feet, and the guy that wins makes nine of ten. But you put us on greens that are subtle, and they think they go one way and they don't, or it looks like they break, but they break the other way. Now you're in our heads, and now we're going to have a problem. And so greens design—that's that's what I'm trying to do for my greens. I want to get them subtle. I want to make them go different directions. I want it to kind of fool your eye a little bit. And I, and I finish float all my own greens at the end just to, to create those little nuances that are in there. And I think that actually adds to the membership's enjoyment because it's not the same golf course every day when they go play, um, but it also is not so tricked up and, and difficult for them to play, meaning slopes and whatever that they have a hard time negotiating with speeds and so on and so forth, that they get to go out and enjoy the golf course. I think I, I can, I've said this before, like if I'm building a, 6,000 square foot house and I put all the marble and brass finishes in the house and it's got the big plasma screen TVs and whatnot, but you have to live in the garage. What's the point? And so I, I compare my greens design to that. If I do a 6,000 square foot green, but only 500 square feet of it's usable, what's the point? You still got to build it. You still got to maintain it. Got to pay for all that, but you can't use it. doesn't make sense. So Looking at what the way tour guys play golf courses in, com- where, in comparison to the way my nephew plays a golf course, there's no comparison. Um, there are oranges and apples, but, you know, how can I still challenge my nephew around a golf course without hurting him uh, is kind of the, the balance that we try and strike or I try and strike in my design. So this is going to be an exciting year for you. The Jayhawk Club is going to be unveiled in its new form, and the Sanderson Farms Championship has moved to a much better date on the PGA Tour schedule. What else are you looking forward to in 2019? What are some other things you're, you're working on? Working on right now a greens uh, renovation, or we will be. We're um, going through the process of getting uh, club approval and community approval down in Tucson. Um, their greens uh, are actually old push-up greens, 
So we're going to go and modify those and, and uh, core them all back out to their original parameters and uh, our original perimeters and uh, also expand them where possible. Uh, we're trying to do that as much as possible without getting into the irrigation to keep the dollars in check. So that's one project. Um, Country Club of Jackson, as I mentioned, we're going through the process right now. We're redoing the bunkers, really just relining them, getting, the new, getting new sand in there. We're also going to sand cap some areas that it's really heavy clay soils. It's called you know, most of the soil in that area. It's called Gazoo clay, and it just it holds a tremendous amount of moisture and water. And if we get any rain at, at all, it, it kind of sets the golf course back a little bit. They've been able to play all 72 holes of the event every year at our club, even with nine inches of rain a few years ago. But uh, we just want to make it that much better for the membership first, and you know, uh, tour guys second. And then um, doing a couple projects for um, a friend of mine up in California uh, at his golf course. And, and uh, I think it's fun regardless if I'm doing a couple bunkers and a tee, just as much as it is doing a full greens renovation. Because every time you do that, every time I'm doing a project like that, I'm making the golf course better in my eyes. And I'd like to think so in the superintendent's eyes as well, as well as the owner. So, you know, I'm a small guy. I'm a one-man band. And... I don't need a lot of work, but it's, uh, you know, every project's meaningful, and that that allows me to be more hands-on with all the projects I do. Well, Mike, it was great having you on the podcast. Good luck with everything you're doing this year and beyond, and keep us updated on how these projects are going. It sounds like you're doing some cool stuff and you're doing some fun work, and, yeah, we'd love to hear more from you. So thanks a lot again for taking the time. Yeah, thanks, Guy. I appreciate the opportunity.